What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Thanks again for listening. I'm still blown away that 90,000 of you listen to this show every week. Thanks so much. Today's story comes from Exeter in the southwest of the UK and it involves stalking. Please don't think that stalking isn't relevant for you. It's relevant for all of us and is far more common than people first think. It's estimated that over 1 in 5 women and 1 in 10 men would experience stalking in their lifetime. This case was written by a friend of the show, Chris Wood. Thanks again, Chris. Before we start, I would like to thank my 140 supporters on Patreon, who now have access to 18 bonus episodes plus other exclusive content. I'd particularly like to thank my new supporters this week. That's Alan Baker, Sandra Sears, Catherine Spencer and Anne Lund. Thank you all for your support. I'd also quickly like to bring to your attention two new UK true crime podcasts which have recently launched. That's Twisted Britain and Seeing Red, which is produced by a friend of the show, Bethan Truman. Please search for both on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and take a listen. As many of you will know, UK true crime podcast producers love to encourage you to listen to news shows, so please take a listen to Seeing Red and Twisted Britain. Let me know your thoughts or discuss the shows at the UK True Crime Facebook group. So rather than spend the rest of the podcast basking in the glory of the mighty Leeds United being top of the league, let's instead set some context for February 2008. Mohamed Al-Fayed told the inquest into the death of Diana that she and his son Dodi were both victims of a murder conspiracy which was put together by MI5, MI6, Tony Blair and the royal family, especially Prince Philip. Even now this subject evokes all kinds of theories and feelings. What do you think about it? Was it simply a tragic accident? Or perhaps something more sinister? I tend to think that if it looks like a dog barks like a dog, and walks on four legs, it's probably a dog. In UK true crime news, Mark Dixie was found guilty of the horrendous murder of Sally Ann Bowman, killed by Dixie as she returned home from an evening out. You may remember the case. She was many yards from her door after arguing with her boyfriend when Dixie violently attacked the young model two weeks after her 18th birthday. Bite marks were found on her cheek, neck and chest and in a final horror she was raped as she lay dead or dying. Just an awful story. In music it was another X Factor winner having success as Alexandra Burke with Hallelujah had the best selling single of the year. As a big Jeff Buckley fan, my dog is named after him, I don't think it's a patch on the original. Ah stop it Adam. You sound like such an old bore, which, just to avoid confusion, I'm not. Well, (laughs) sort of, anyway. 
The US charts were topped this month by Flo Rida featuring T-Pain with Low. And in the Australian album charts, Jack Johnson was number one with Sleep Through the Static. So on to today's story. Helen Pearson lived in Exeter, in the county of Devon in the southwest of England. Renowned for its seaside fishing towns and ports, Devon is also home to the vast moorland that is Dartmoor, which provided the inspiration for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's classic, The Hound of the Baskervilles. For 34-year-old Helen, however, the county's beauty was furthest from her mind. Instead, she was being forced to contend with a very real type of beast. In 2008, things seemed to be going well for Helen. She had just moved out of her parents' house and was relishing the independence a place of her own gave her. She had also secured a new job working for a mental health charity and so had every reason to believe that things were looking good. Keen to build relationships with others in the block she'd recently moved to, Helen set about getting to know the fellow residents and she forged several friendships. When one of Helen's elderly neighbours approached her for some help with her son, Joe Willis, Helen did not hesitate to assist. This was the type of person she was, after all. The lady claimed that her son was sick, unemployed and generally lonely, and wondered if Helen might be prepared to spend some time with him to help fill his days. Helen agreed to this request, although initially she had that peculiar feeling about him that we get sometimes, but you can't quite put your finger on it and explain what it is. It always seemed just beyond her grasp, but something wasn't quite right. Despite her worries, she nonetheless kindly invited Joe to join her on a charity cycle ride she was about to take part in, and he enthusiastically accepted the invitation. Following the bike ride, Joe was keen to spend more time with Helen, and he invited her to accompany him to a music concert the following week. Helen, she was a bit taken back at this offer, She didn't view Joe as a prospective romance in any way whatsoever, and so she declined his invitation. It was a touch awkward, but she expected this to be the end of the matter. It wasn't. On the night of the gig, Joe called Helen's phone on multiple occasions, but as she had made her feelings perfectly clear already, she didn't answer the calls. The following morning, at around 7am, Helen spotted an unkempt-looking Joe loitering outside the building where she lived. She later claimed that she felt it was like he'd been waiting for her, but she shrugged it off. I guess most of us would do the same, and we certainly wouldn't be expecting the barrage of worry that was soon to plague Helen. When Helen spoke to Joe that morning, he appeared to be drunk. The smell of alcohol lingered and his words were slurred. He began demanding an explanation as to why Helen hadn't answered his calls the previous evening. She told him that her phone had been on silent, and as she had already told him, nicely but firmly, nothing was going to happen between the two of them. At this point, Joe seemed to accept this, and Helen soon forgot about the incident. But within two months, Helen encountered further problems. In January, she found that her bike tyres had been slashed, but she thought little of it assuming it was down to local youngsters. She certainly had no reason at this point to suspect anything more sinister. And luckily enough, Joe Willis, of all people, was first on the scene to help her fix the tyres. A week later, 
Helen returned home from work only to find her front door locks filled with glue. This seemed a very deliberate act, and one that prompted Helen to report the incident to the police. Sadly, she was offered no reassurance. She was told that the crime wasn't serious enough to warrant an investigation. And in April of 2009, things steadily worsened for Helen. She was forced to change her mobile number following an array of abusive texts and calls. At one point, she even found an advert in a public phone box selling sex with her number on it. By now, Helen understandably felt that someone was for some reason unknown to her out to get her. She'd done the correct thing and reported each incident, and at one point even suggested to police that Joe Willis was the only person she could think of as a potential suspect. The police response to this was to repeatedly ask Helen if Joe had been an old flame. As she told them they'd never been romantically linked, they advised her that he was very unlikely to be the guilty party. This completely incompetent stance taken from the police seems misinformed at best. However, this wouldn't be their only failing in this case. As the year progressed, so too did the incidents. Helen had been recording each individual incident and every call she made to police in a homemade log. She wasn't being overly cautious in doing this. She just really believed that Joe was poised to turn violent and she just wanted it all to stop so she could just resume her normal life. But by June, Helen had quit the job she enjoyed so much and she became to all intents and purposes a recluse in her own flat. Can you imagine how that must feel? Feeling like everything around you is slowly slipping away, including the control you have over your own safety, and also the feeling that no one is supporting you, or when you've done absolutely nothing wrong. On the increasingly rare occasions that she summoned up the courage to leave her flat, she'd be confronted with lacerations to her car tyres, even on occasions finding damage to the bodywork too. From this point onwards, barely a week would pass without a new problem to confront. Whenever Helen saw Joe, he of course played dumb and simply acted as though nothing was going on. Helen would later recall that he was so casual about it. He even sidled up to my mum one day and asked her why I wasn't speaking to him. Helen's mum advised her that the best course of action was to try and act as though he wasn't a suspect so that the situation wouldn't be inflamed further and also give him the chance to take his anger out on her anymore. In August 2010, however, things took a darker turn. A letter was delivered to her home. It was unsigned, but the note was beyond chilling. It read, I want to play a game. So far, all you've had done has been damaged your property. I therefore wish to see how well you'd cope if you were attacked in person. Would you fight back? Scream? Let the game begin. Whoever had written it was clearly familiar with the Saw horror films. But this letter wasn't a one-off. It was one of 23 in total. Many included death threats and he called her a lying evil girl and warned her to watch her back. But this bile wasn't reserved exclusively for Helen. Her parents, Bernard and Lynn, and even some of her friends began to receive them too. 
The police continued to insist that the perpetrator must be an ex-lover, and thus ruling Joe out as a potential suspect. They did, however, agree with Helen in one aspect, that the stalker must live nearby. Only a few days following the menacing letter, the words, Die, Helen, were emblazoned in blood-red paint across a neighbour's door. Although Helen was still certain that Joe was behind the campaign of terror, the police ruled there wasn't enough evidence to arrest him. Perhaps more shockingly though, they also admitted to Helen that they'd no officer's experience in tackling stalkers. Just what you want to hear during the most terrifying ordeal of your life. As you can understand, Helen was feeling very fobbed off by the police and she got the impression from them that they even believed that she could be responsible for the letters and graffiti. Helen later said, It didn't help that every time I reported an incident, I got a new reference number and spoke to a different officer. The reports were never looked at as a whole, meaning the police just didn't get the bigger picture. September 2010 saw the victimisation shift again to Helen's mum and dad. Their car was vandalised and Helen's own tyres were also slashed again. Helen and her family had by now ended up spending over £9,000 on car repairs alone. Helen was now not only fearing for her own safety, but that of her family too. She reluctantly stopped seeing them, but thought it was the only option of keeping them from danger. She believed that the attack on her family was a planned tactic used by whoever was stalking her to manipulate her into cutting herself off from her nearest and dearest, or put more plainly, to get her on her own. A couple of months later, with now nearly 70 reports the police made, Helen decided to hire a private investigator to put Joe Willis under surveillance. The plan, however, failed to work. Had the stalker discovered what she was planning? Something certainly spooked him as the stalker stayed clear of Helen and the contract was eventually ended and not renewed. She did, however, finally get a little bit more luck with the police. She finally managed to convince them to keep watch in an unmarked car in an undercover attempt to snare the stalker. Unbelievably though, the officers, dressed in full uniform, drove off halfway through the supposed operation. Understandably, Helen was furious. If Joe had been watching, he'd have seen exactly what we were trying to do. They completely scuppered any chance of catching him in the act. Some four months later, more graffiti was exhibited by the stalker. The words, die Helen, die, were spray painted on the pavement near to her home. At the same time as this, Helen would be woken in the night by smashed windows and knocks on the door at least a couple of times a week. She said, you can't imagine how much it takes over your life, living in fear, constantly wondering when he's going to strike and if he'll kill you. I wasn't able to turn to the police as they had no idea how to deal with my case. The nerve-jangling episodes continued over the next two years, but in September 2013, Helen was confronted with a horrifying escalation in events. She returned home one evening to find a dead cat left on her doorstep. Was this a morbid and sinister warning to Helen 
of what the stalker had in mind for her. The following month, October, it appeared that the cat incident was indeed intended as a prelude to something more grim and final. Helen was on her way to the gym and just passing St Bartholomew's Cemetery in Exeter, completely unaware that someone was lying in wait for her. As she later recalled, I felt a stabbing pain in my back. The sheer force of it pushed me to the ground and I was in total shock. As I turned, I saw it was Joe and he stabbed me again. He was staring at me blankly and my pleas for him to stop seemed to spur him on. It was like he was gaining strength from my screams. Brandishing a foot-long pair of dressmaking type scissors, Willis then dragged a dazed and shocked Helen into the graveyard before launching another frenzied attack, stabbing her in the back, neck and head and missing her jugular vein by the tiniest of margins. It was little wonder that Helen thought she was going to die. I was certain that Joe was going to kill me and stuff my body into one of the graves. He kept punching me in the ribs and stabbing me over and over again. Helen's fears may well have been realised had her screams not alerted a passer-by to her fearful plight. Sandra Robertson was a passing motorist who heard Helen's screams. She stopped her car and ran over to the scene and witnessed a man leaning over her and trying to plunge the scissors into her throat. Sandra bravely grabbed Willis and pushed him off Helen before he fled the scene. This remarkable act of bravery would later earn her a £500 reward issued to her from the judge who presided over the subsequent court hearing. This intervention allowed Helen to run out of the cemetery and take refuge at the Fitness First gym. Questioned at the gym by a police officer, hysterical Helen cried, It was my stalker! An ambulance crew rushed her to hospital where she battled for survival. Her awful injuries could very well have caused her to lose her life. Doctors said that one of her lungs was full of blood and she was very lucky to be alive. She was indeed very fortunate, but there have been so many warnings and reports of what was happening to Helen issued to the police that were simply not acted upon. Prior to the horrendous graveyard attack, Helen had reported Willis to Devon and Cornwall Police a staggering 125 times, yet her cries still went unheard. Willis was finally arrested after his attempt on Helen's life, and next the Crown Court would see his trial unfold, charged as he was with attempted murder, which he denied. Richard Crabb QC prosecuting laid bare the facts of Helen's ordeal. It should not be forgotten that this reign of terror spanned five years, all stemming from that one charity bike ride. It just doesn't bear thinking about, does it? Five years. The assault was the final culmination of the most twisted of campaigns and was described as being five years of hell. In his opening statement to the jury, QC Crabbe said, The defendant was obsessed with Helen Pearson and consumed with hostility for reasons that may never become apparent. Willis was consumed by hatred. He had done his best to make her life a misery and made clear threats against her. Helen movingly told the jury about the attack, saying, He came from behind. I did not hear him because it was raining heavily and I had my umbrella up. The first thing I knew was when I was stabbed in the back. I turned and saw it was Joe. I saw his eyes and he looked absolutely furious. 
The first blow pushed me to the ground and he kicked me and was dragging me along. It was obvious he was trying to get me into the catacombs. That was where I was going to end. I tried to get free. I felt another kick and stab from behind. I thought this is going on until I am completely dead. I got my phone and was able to dial two nines but not the third as he got the phone away from me. He was deranged and so evil. He knew full well what he was doing and he was determined I was going to be dead. He was trying to drag me further and further from the cemetery entrance gates and I thought this is where he's going to get rid of the body. I thought I would never be found and my mum and dad would not know what happened. Willis did not admit the charge of attempted murder but he did admit causing grievous bodily harm to Helen. So the main aim of the jury in this instance was to try to decipher whether Willis was guilty of attempted murder or GBH. When Willis was called to give evidence, he denied ever having sent any poison pen letters or making any abusive calls. Willis said, I never sent any nasty letters to her or her parents. I did not make any of the calls or do any of the damage to her car, bike or home. I was worried that she was getting harassed and felt sorry for her and I said I would keep an eye out for her and tell police if I saw anything. The court then heard how Willis had planned to commit suicide on the day of the attack. Shame he didn't. He claimed that he went to the flats where he used to live to say goodbye to his friends when he saw Helen. There was an audible gasp in the courtroom as Willis said that as he saw Helen, she pulled out a pair of scissors and attacked him. Telling the court he was in fear of his life, he stabbed her three times and said that some of her wounds were caused accidentally as they grappled on the ground. Willis also said, Now I look upon it, I think I did wrong, but I thought I was going to be really, really badly injured. Thankfully, however, this bizarre account from Willis was to no avail, and Willis was duly found guilty of attempted murder on the 15th of April 2014. On the 30th of May, Willis was sentenced to serve a minimum of 13 years in prison, with no chance of parole being possible before this time. Following the verdict, Helen's parents demonstrated remarkable compassion, saying, The events of last October have had a huge effect on us as a family, but there is also the family of Joseph Willis to consider, and we understand the anguish they are no doubt suffering also. A similar level of compassion could not be reserved for the police, however. Helen had been failed desperately by the Devon and Cornwall Police Force, and a complaint was submitted to the IPCC. Helen later told the BBC that they'd missed dozens of opportunities to prevent the stabbing. She said, I was terribly failed. The attacks were getting worse and worse and the police failed to realise and act. The complaint lodged by Helen detailed events through a 48-page document and the force said they would cooperate fully with the IPCC. The force's professional standards department was also forced to carry out its own review of the case. In June 2017, nearly three years after the attack, the Devil and Cornwall Police had completed their internal probe into Helen's complaint. Their findings confirmed that Helen had indeed been let down by their investigation and victim care. The force also confirmed that its professional standards department had found cases of misconduct against three of its officers, one of whom had retired, what a surprise, whilst the other two were 
given management guidance and advice. Isn't that just a complete whitewash? It's so frustrating that again and again, when an apology is issued, nobody seems to actually have lost their job or have any accountability. When we hear our authorities talk of lessons learned and make these nothing apologies, we know they are coming, but we are equally sure they are pointless. And Helen felt the same way. Chief Constable Sean Sawyer met with Helen and her family to offer a personal apology, something that Helen, understandably, could not accept. Dismissing it as meaningless, she said, The apology does nothing for me. I am still suffering every day because of what happened to me. All I can hope is that what happened to me means police officers get more training and deal with victims of stalking better, so that no one has to go through what I did. She said the experience was like living on a knife edge constantly. Every night you go to bed and you don't know what's going to happen and you constantly live in fear. Despite the force claiming to have taken the stalking campaign seriously, it certainly appears that nobody within the ranks could see that the level of violence was rapidly escalating, which ended in the frenzied graveyard attack. As brazen as his attack on Helen was, so was Willis's speedy appeal of sentence shortly afterwards. Judges at the Royal Courts of Justice in London upheld the initial sentence, asserting that the term was indeed justified for such a vicious attack. But enough of Willis. The mammoth catalogue of errors in this case very nearly led to a young woman becoming another murder statistic. Although her good fortune in surviving the attack may be positive, as Helen would later say, I would say the real hell started when the attack finished. The psychological trauma that Helen must contend with and battle against every single day of her life must be excruciatingly difficult. Since Helen's ordeal, however, our authorities in the UK have at least tried to confront this most terrifying of crimes and bring it closer to public consciousness. Nobody should have to endure what Helen Pearson was forced to live through. And as Helen stated following the trial, any laws and things that are coming in to help people are all steps in the right direction, and I just want them to learn from my case. We can only hope that in time, Helen can somehow put these experiences somewhat behind her and try to live her life as freely as she pleases. And more widely, it must be hoped that the issue of stalking is taken more seriously by our police forces. Stalking, like controlling behaviour, ruins lives and causes huge mental stress which can take years to recover from. On average, victims record more than 100 incidents of stalking before they report it. The law is gradually acknowledging the seriousness of this crime, but until the police are trained to act promptly to restrain stalkers, victims can still expect to endure prolonged misery. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast, and thanks again to Chris Wood for bringing this case to my attention. Please head to our Facebook group to discuss this episode, and to support the show and listen to 18 bonus episodes, please go to patreon.com slash UK true crime. So that is all from me for this week. So until we speak again, remember, put the needle on the record. Until next time, it's cheerio.